This morning, I want to um, take another perspective and explore this idea that the Holy Spirit is the unifier, the unifier. Yesterday morning, as I do on Saturday mornings during winter, uh, Niall and I were down at Burnside Park, quarter past nine for his soccer. And uh, it, it, was, it wasn't frosty yesterday, it was muddy, <laughs> it was definitely muddy, but it was not frosty, which was good. And so uh, every Saturday morning, there's myself and three other coaches, we sort of work together um, to corral about 60 kids aged between six and eight. Yes, it's like herding cats. Yes, it is. <laughs> but it's so much fun. But yesterday, we turned up there and, and the head coach, he said, we're going to do things a little bit differently today. What I want to do is, um, is organise our kids into teams of five and we're going to do like a round robin tournament thing. We're going to, they will stay in their team for the whole day so we want them to kind of get used to playing together, getting used to some positions, getting, uh, developing some combinations and things. I was like, okay, this is cool. This is a bit different. And so what we also wanted to do was intentionally group the players together roughly according to their ability level. Because we didn't want there to be like a team of like two really talented players with three not so talented and then the two clever dudes just pass to each other and the others don't get a look in. So we thought, well, if we try and create teams where there's a relatively level playing field of talent, they hopefully will work together and that will be good. So what we ended up with, there were, um, there were three teams who were perhaps at the more talented end of the spectrum and then three teams who were less talented but perhaps more enthusiastic. Enthusiasm's good. It really, really is. And so then we began this round robin and these teams were playing each other and we thought, you know, we might need to give some of the less talented teams a bit of a hand, you know, that's all right. But what do you think happened? Who do you think won the games? The enthusiastic ones actually won more games than the clearly more talented teams. And it was an interesting little exercise for me. And some of the more talented players were getting quite grumpy with themselves and with one another on their teams because they were getting not just beaten, they were getting thrashed. I, it was good. I was like, I think this is an important life lesson here. And it was really interesting, again, just to see, it, we see this often in sport, that it's one thing to have a collection of individuals who are wearing the same uniform, and we call that a team. But it's possible for a team that don't have nearly as much talent to be far more effective because they figure out that they need to work together. And so the teams that were willing to work together and committed themselves to it came out on top. That fascinates me. And it speaks to me about this whole idea of unity. See, unity is not just having the same uniform and being on the same team. Unity is actually figuring out how we work together, how we recognize our differences, our respective strengths and our limitations, and how we all pull in the same direction, not trying to be the glory hound, most talented, but genuinely working together as a team. So unity is an interesting thing, isn't it? And to be fair, it's easy to look around our world and see glimpses of it, 
But generally speaking, I would suggest that real unity is pretty rare, and it's more common for us to see disunity, disagreement, division, and conflict. And it's easy to maybe draw the conclusion that real unity, maybe it's just an unrealistic pipe dream. Maybe it's just never possible. Maybe we need to just deal with the reality of conflict and division instead of actually trying to reach this point of true unity. But I want to suggest to you this morning that our Christian faith has a lot to say about unity. That unity and reconciliation is a big part of what Jesus came to bring about. That the gospel is not just about being reconciled to God, it's just as much about being reconciled to one another, not just within the body of Christ, but being reconciled to one another as human beings so that life could happen as God has always intended it to happen. See, the redemption of all creation is about God's intended purposes for creation being brought about through Jesus Christ. And the good news is we know how the story ends. We know that there will come a point where God will once and for all establish his dominion over all of creation. He will establish a new heavens and a new earth that will be completely free from sin and sickness and every tainting influence that is opposed to his purposes and true unity will be established for all of eternity. That's what we believe, right? That's what we, we, we have a confidence that human history is actually heading towards, despite what our world looks like. That's what scripture points us towards. And we are all destined to be a part of that beautiful picture of unity, complete unity with God, complete unity with his creation, complete unity with one another, and we're going to enjoy that for all eternity. Not just that we kind of put on hold, therefore, our belief about when unity might be possible. Oh, yeah, we'll enjoy that when we kick off an eternity. Like, that'll be awesome. But we who are a part of the church of Jesus Christ, we are called to be a part of realizing a foretaste of that unity here and now in the way that we live together. The church is God's plan for putting his power on display for all to see. I absolutely believe that. God's heart is not just that one or two random individuals get put up on a pedestal and the world goes, wow, look at the power of God. It's us together as the family of God. It's us as an expression of the church who are being put on display by God for all to see evidence of his power. How will the world see this demonstration of God's power? Well, it's not just through miraculous healings. It's not just through the miraculous transformation of lives and situations, but it's through the miracle of diverse people like you and I being empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit to live in unity. We are all alike in need of God's grace. That's what the gospel declares. Every human being is in need of God's grace. God offers grace and forgiveness to all of us in Jesus Christ. All who accept Christ, become part of the family of God. We are adopted into his family. There's hope for all. There's healing for all. There's purpose for all of us alike in Jesus Christ. And so that's good. There's a lot that we have in common. But obviously, we are all different. We bring with us into God's family different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, different values, different priorities, different passions and abilities different ways of seeing the world, 
different ways of responding to situations. So as much as Jesus Christ is the foundation of our faith, all of those differences that there continue to be between us have the potential to fracture and divide what God intends to be united. Division and disunity is not God's heart, but we must recognize that it's a very real danger. It is, because we're different. It just goes with the territory. Psalm 133, verse 1, this is a really well-known little verse from the Old Testament. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's so awesome, they put an exclamation mark at the end of it. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. But it's not just about us experiencing something that is good and pleasant. Check out what Jesus said. This is John 17, verses 22 and 23. Jesus was praying for his followers, praying for all who would believe in him. And so he prayed, I've given them, my my followers, the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, unified, as we are one. It's Jesus talking about himself and God the Father and the Spirit, that complete and perfect unity that is a part of what we call the Trinity. And how incredible is that, that Jesus What he's expressing here is this desire that we, as followers of Jesus, would be one in the same way that the Trinity is one. God in three persons, yet completely unified. I in them and you in me, Jesus prays, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's powerful. What that says to me is that as much as there can be other demonstrations of the Spirit's power to confirm the gospel, one of the most significant ways that God intends to reveal himself to the world, to our community, to our friends and family who don't know Jesus, is through the unity that we have with one another. So unity is not just some peripheral thing. Could I suggest to you that our collective effectiveness for Jesus rests on our unity as much as anything else? So we can't just go, oh, yeah, unity's a nice idea. We'll just put that over there, but really we'll focus in more on, you know, whatever, the the healing, the power, this, that, or the other thing. Those are great too, but we cannot just limit unity to the sidelines when we read something like this from the mouth of Jesus. If we desire to be effective for Jesus, unity's key. Now, obviously, unity is not the same as uniformity. There's a subtle difference there. The insistence on complete uniformity is actually a warning sign that something's not right. Like it is, eh? Like if you've got anyone standing up and saying, essentially it's my way or the highway, like let that be a warning sign in whatever context it is that something unhealthy is actually going on. Like this is, like cults operate on the basis of this. It's the limitation of freedom. You cannot disagree, otherwise you're expelled, you're out. There's consequences. So again, when we talk about unity, we're not saying it's about complete uniformity of thought and everything within us as the body of Christ. So there's a tension there. The Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament about disputable matters, areas where it's actually okay within the theological bounds of our faith to hold differing views. Check out Romans 14. This is a really practical thing that Paul wrote about here. 
He says to to a church like us, he said, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Like we kind of look at that and go, don't look at any vegetarians around you, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So this was something that was obviously practically going on within the church. There were disputes and arguments between different groups of people, some who were herbivores and the carnivores. And and they were seriously, all sorts of interesting dynamics were going on there. And Paul is speaking to a very specific situation. Check out what he says from verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. A little bit further down in verse 13, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And he concludes it with these verses. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Wow. That's pretty challenging stuff. But the heart of it, again, is that Paul recognized that in terms of this quarrel about vegetables or meat, like it is okay to hold different views. It's okay for you to think that you know, vegetables are it. It's okay to think that meat is God's gift to all creation and that all should slowly, slowly get that you know, brisket and pork belly and everything just... It's almost lunchtime. Uh, <laughs> it's okay to believe that that's you know, what God wants for you. The danger comes where we take what our, what our preferences or what our personal belief is and we then seek to impose that on everyone and make a rule of it for everyone. There are lots of areas within the theological bounds of our faith where it is okay for us to hold differing views and we must allow one another to hold differing views. Not treating one another with contempt, not judging, but allowing the difference while protecting unity. Interesting, eh? So adopting a definition of unity that allows for difference of opinion it points us really back to our need for the Holy Spirit's empowering presence. Like where there are many possible causes for division and disunity, many reasons where we could just go out separate ways. The power of the Holy Spirit becomes evident to the world through the way that he enables us, diverse as we are, to live together in unity. As, I guess another practical example of this, like, Think of uh, political affiliation, okay? It's just as possible to support from Scripture aspects of political ideology on the left and on the right of your political spectrum. Just as possible. Not to agree with it entirely, but there are aspects all along that spectrum that you could substantiate from Scripture. It's equally possible to oppose both the left and the right from a solid scriptural foundation. So this is an area where as followers of Jesus, there is scope for difference of opinion. And there is no place in church for using the pulpit to influence anyone else's view or steer you to vote in a particular way. No place for it. Because to claim that scripture only clearly supports one point along the political spectrum, it's just not true. 
So we need to be willing to allow a diversity of view and stance there. So this is, this is challenging stuff, but it's not a new, these are not new challenges that we're facing. It's true that there are specific uh, ethical challenges for us today that are different to what the early church were facing in the first century. But the overriding challenge of how to maintain unity in the face of the potential for fragmentation and grumpiness is not a phenomenon peculiar to our 21st century context. Paul was dealing with it with food. We have to deal with it in different areas, right? But this is my key scripture for this morning. This is Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. Paul wrote these words, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you... Jew and Gentile together, have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. That's really practical. And a couple of observations um, to, to stir our thinking around unity. First idea is this, that the, the calling that Paul talks about here is not a personal calling. Like we are called to glorify God together through the uncommon unity between us that the Holy Spirit enables. When we think about the call of God, we often go, yeah, God, what's your call for my life? We approach it from a very individualistic perspective, generally. And, and it's okay to a point. We do believe that God has a call and a purpose for every single person's life as an individual. But often in our Western context, we zero in on that personal calling to the detriment of this idea of something that we're actually called to together and that we can only ever realize together. We are called to glorify God together through the uncommon unity between us that the Holy Spirit enables. This is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4. See, earlier on in, in the letter, in Ephesians 2, he talked about how through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father by one Spirit. And in him, you too, Jew and Gentile, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Boy, that's cool. See, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Well, he lives inside of me. That's true, but that's not all there is to it. Our unity is important because it's through our unity that the fullness of God's spirit can be released and reflected to our community in a way that goes way beyond whatever any of us could ever do by ourselves as an individual. This is where, this verse here, 22, this is where Paul's essentially describing what our together calling is. We are called to be a dwelling together in which God lives by his spirit and from which the life of God's spirit flows. That's sort of the end of chapter 2 of Ephesians. And from there, he goes off on a little bit of a tangent. But in chapter 4, when he starts talking about living a life worthy of the calling you have received, this is what he's talking about. How do we live together in such a way that we join with God in the way that he wants to build us together? So again, we're together called to glorify God 
through the uncommon unity that the Holy Spirit enables between us. Second thought is this, that prayer is really key to unity. Let's not just break this down to a solely practical level and ignore the fact that there's a spiritual battle going on for the unity amongst us. And if that's true, then prayer is going to be really, really important if we are to protect this unity between us. Prayer is key to living in unity. Paul prayed for the empowering of the Holy Spirit amongst us as diverse individuals to enable unity before he went into the specifics and practicalities of behavior. Before he gets down to nuts and bolts, rubber hits the road life, Paul prayed in his letter. And it's a well-known prayer in chapter three. This is what Paul prayed. He said, for this reason, pause, what reason? Well, it's the reason that he spoke about earlier in chapter two, the reason that Paul has this understanding that God is wanting to build us together. But it's Paul being a realist as well and recognizing that that's not gonna ever happen without prayer. So for this reason, Paul says, I kneel before the Father and I pray that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. So he's praying for them as individuals that they'd be filled with the Holy Spirit, but he's praying for them together, recognizing that if we are not filled with the Holy Spirit, if we don't know what it is to live our lives based on the love of God that is so wide and high and long and deep that you can't figure it out or measure it, if we don't know that, any encouragement towards unity is never really going to happen. So Paul prayed. Paul knew that without the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, unity will not be realized. Please pray for the unity of our church. I know many of you do, and I say thank you for that. Please continue to pray for the unity amongst one another. Especially if there are any times where you become aware of conflict or or differing views and things. Please pray. As much as there are practical avenues that we can explore, please pray. Let's not just put an action plan into place without it being soaked in prayer and without going, Jesus, we need your spirit here if we're to stay unified when there's the potential here for it to all be fractured and to blow apart. Please pray for the unity of our church. Incidentally, we've um, just this term started up our Wednesday night prayer here at church, 7.30 to 8.30 every week during school term, We're here. There's here, there's about half a dozen of us who are here and we pray. It's an open invite. You don't have to be a prayer expert. You don't have to, no no prerequisites. You know, it's all good. Just come as you are. What, What do we pray for? It's different every week. But a big part of it lately has been just praying for unity, going, God, knit us together. God, continue to build us into the structure that would glorify you in the way that we live our lives. So consider this an open invite. Wednesday night, 7.30 to 8.30, here at church, we pray. Is that okay? Just a wee plug, plug for prayer. So unity is a collective calling. Prayer is key to it. And then lastly, it's this idea that the Holy Spirit is always at work to bring us together in unity. But we also have a responsibility to keep 
his unity amongst us. This is a real tension here. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, remember Paul said, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's a couple of things I love about that verse that I find an incredible relief. See, the unity between us is the unity of the Spirit. Ha, ah, that's great news if you're a pastor because it's not the unity that Phil can bring about. Ah, it's the unity of the Spirit. It's not my job to create unity amongst us. Neither is your job. It's the Holy Spirit's job. But our job is to make every effort to keep that unity. So we're not off the hook going, yes, the Holy Spirit does it sweet. It's up to us to make every effort to keep that unity that the Holy Spirit is always pulling us back towards. I, I think of it like a Christmas tree. You what? <laughs> it's like a Christmas tree. It's this idea that um, often when Bron and I, from time to time, we do um, pre-marriage counseling or relationship counseling. And it's this idea that when you're in a marriage, um, you're united. But then if you have different jobs, different careers, you've got different aspects of your life every day, we kind of go our separate ways. And that's okay to be united. We don't have to do everything together. But it's imperative that when there's been a separation, there's a coming back together. And then there's a separation and a restoring back to the central point of unity. And so it becomes this beautiful Christmas. You see how it's a Christmas tree? Yeah. Works in my mind anyway. <laughs> And it's kind of the similar idea, like the Holy Spirit is always at work to pull us back together to this point of unity. We can rely on him to always be doing that amongst us, which is such a relief and such a beautiful way that he works amongst us. But we need to make every effort to make sure that we're pulling in the same direction, essentially, as the Holy Spirit. When Paul talks about keeping the, the unity of the Spirit, it's a Greek word, tereo, which means uh, the Maori language. No, it doesn't. Um, tereo, which means to attend carefully to, to guard, to take care of, which is really cool. We have a responsibility to guard unity in the way that we live and do life together. Remember that really challenging little conclusion from Romans 14. Let's just bring that up again. Let us therefore, Paul says, make every effort, same word, tereo, to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. That's a really sobering scripture. What I, what I wrote down this week that kind of freaked me out, but is true, is that there's the potential that through insisting on the rightness of my own point of view and through denigrating someone else's point of view, that I destroy the work of God for the sake of my opinion. There's that potential. In Paul's situation, it was about who likes vegetables and who likes meat. He's like, it's okay to have differences, but you need to allow one another to have those differences. Otherwise, you're destroying the work of unity that God, by his spirit, is wanting to accomplish amongst you. So again, it's important to recognize that there's that potential there. If we insist on rightness being defined as my definition of rightness in every situation at all costs, I can be working against what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do amongst us. 
So how do we do that? Paul's really practical. In Ephesians 4.2, the verse exactly before, he says this, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. There's a really important word in there, completely. Oh, man, that makes it hard, doesn't it? Because if it just said, you know, be humble and gentle, I am a little bit humble and gentle sometimes, but he doesn't let us off the hook. He's like, be, if we're to live this unity, it requires us to be completely humble and gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love. See, humility is where I recognize that as strongly as I feel about something, I may not be completely correct. Shock horror. That's humility. Humility is where I'm willing to listen and genuinely seek to understand the other person's perspective. Not just get more entrenched in my position and lob hand grenades at anyone else in the other trench over there. Like that's often what conflict devolves into, doesn't it? Willing to listen. Humility is where I'm more concerned with preserving our relationship than I am with proving that I am right and you are wrong, in my opinion. We often say, in my humble opinion, and that's code for I'm not actually being humble right now. (laughs) Interesting how we use language, isn't it? In my humble opinion, you're not being humble. (laughs) Humility is where I'm more mindful of what the other person needs and not just consumed with what I want. I, I love this church community, and I want to thank you all for the many instances that I hear about or that I witness on any given week of a beautiful, beautiful unity. I want to thank you all for an incredible commitment to keeping the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace in a way that allows a difference of opinion at times in a way that respects the dignity, the God-given dignity that we all possess as children of God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And let's keep going on that track, church. We've got to expect that the enemy will try subtle ways of sneaking in to fracture, to divide, to muck up that unity. But as much as we're aware of that, what we can do practically is to continue to commit ourselves to being completely humble and gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love. My last observation about this cool little verse. Gentle, patient, and love. Our power zone kids would very quickly be able to tell me that those are three fruits of the Holy Spirit because they've been doing the fruit of the Spirit lately. And they are. And so as much as this is a very practical instruction that Paul is giving here, embedded within it is this idea that we can only be humble, gentle, patient, and loving when we know the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Because these are fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. So praise God that he doesn't expect us just to Try harder to be more humble, to be more gentle, patient, and loving. He is at work within us to produce these things. And that's all well and good. We can love that idea when things are going great, but it's, it's when we become aware of difference between us, those are the times where it's saying, Holy Spirit, help 
it's the best prayer sometimes. Holy Spirit, help. Help me be humble. Help me be gentle. Help me be patient and loving above all else in the way that I respond and seek to move forward. How we can move forward, not just me. Holy Spirit, would you bring a shift in our minds so that more and more we are thinking in terms of we and not just in terms of me. We live in a culture that encourages us all the time to just think about number one. That's actually contradictory to the gospel. The work of God's spirit within us is actually all the time encouraging us to not just think about number one and not just live in a dog-eat-dog world so that I can scale the ladder at everyone else's expense. The Holy Spirit wants to develop within us a we mentality, especially amongst us in the body of Christ. It's about us together bringing glory to God. So next week, same time, same channel, we're going to be back here. And um, I've invited a few different people to actually just continue exploring some of the different practicalities of how we can protect unity amongst us in the body of Christ, especially at the times where we're aware of our differences of opinion. So this is kind of the precursor to it, our part one. Come back next week for part two. How'd you like my marketing? Amazing, amazing. <laughs> Not really, no. But hey, can I ask you to stand? Let's pray as we bring this to a close for this morning. The Holy Spirit is the unifier. There's, there's such relief in reflecting on that, isn't there? It's not just on me, it's not on you, it's not even on us. It's about us bringing ourselves into alignment with a key way that the Holy Spirit is always at work amongst us, whether we realize it or not. And so Lord, we wanna thank you for the gift of your Spirit because this idea of unity, Lord, it would not be possible if we're just trying hard to make it happen ourselves. But we thank you that you know our limitations far clearer than we do. And you've poured out your spirit without limit on all of us who profess faith in you, Jesus. So we just commit ourselves to you afresh today. We thank you that we can rely on you always being at work to unify us to bring us back to what we have in common, to preserve relationships, to move forward together.